0: The text for our sermon this morning comes out of Ezekiel chapter 16, which I told you last week is probably one of the most difficult chapters to preach in all of the Bible, and I, I don't say that braggingly, I say it, I say it sort of with, with not only humility but also a bit of terror, um, that um, it, is, it is the Lord really in no uncertain terms revealing the the depth of the scandal of sin and idolatry. And so the, the title of the sermon is, is The Queen Becomes a Harlot, Part 3. You're, we're following this story in chapter 16 of this abandoned and dying uh, woman who, who is elevated to royalty, saved and rescued by God. And that this is a, it's supposed to be a parallel, a picture of Jerusalem. Uh, and and, and the, so the Lord comes to Jerusalem and, and says, I, I said to you, wallowing in your blood, about to die. I said to you, live. I gave you life. I gave you blessings. I gave you everything you needed. And then I gave you myself. And, and the Lord in this parable becomes a husband to Israel, to Jerusalem. And then she abandons her Lord. Her, her husband is, is the parable and goes chasing after other gods. Chasing after other nations and their powers and their gods and their idols and... Um, Another title for this sermon could be how quickly we forget. That is what uh, this text is. That's one of the primary aspects of this text is God tells his people, you have forgotten. You've forgotten what it is I did for you. You've forgotten who I am to you. You've forgotten the the covenant into which we entered. And before we read this text, I just want to emphasize to you that when we talk about uh, forgetfulness, that's not kind of the way that you and I tend to use the word today which forgetfulness is, is a rather innocent kind of act, right? So you, you, you meant to get milk at the store. You didn't write it down, and you forgot, right? No sin there. Uh, and and we, don't, we don't tend to associate sin with forgetfulness. Spiritual forgetfulness is different. And the way that the Lord speaks of forgetfulness uh, in this chapter and in many other places in the Bible is essentially... You've chosen to forget and to keep on forgetting. Or in other words, you live as though not only you've forgotten me, but that I never mattered to you in the first place. That you've forgotten my promises. That you've forgotten my goodness to you. Uh, That that, that you're living as though those things didn't happen. And so let's go ahead and I'll I'll, I'll read the text to you this morning. And then we will uh, investigate it together. Beginning in verse 35. After the Lord has um, told Israel and told Jerusalem, here are all the ways that you have disregarded me, that you have been like a prostitute with your idols, is the, is the image that he gives. What we now hear is the judgment. So we've heard the indictment. Imagine, if you imagine kind of a courtroom setting, now this is the judgment. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of Yahweh, or the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, because your lust was poured out, Your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. You'll remember that from an earlier sermon. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all of your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. Bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will give you into their hands. They shall throw down your vaulted chamber, break down your lofty places. You might remember that from last Sunday. They shall strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewels, and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you. They shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They shall burn your houses and will execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. Precisely what happened to the city of Jerusalem. I will make you stop playing the whore. You shall give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord Yahweh. Have you not committed lewdness? in addition to all your abominations. And so we come today to try and understand these things that the Lord said to Israel and understand how we might uh, take that, that understanding of what God has said and apply it to our lives. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. God begins the section then of this text by calling out His people for who they are. Remember that very first sentence. This is not name-calling so much as the Lord simply stating the reality. He addresses them by what they have become, by what they have made themselves to be. He calls them what they are. Martin Luther famously had a theological distinction that he coined called a theology of the cross. And Luther basically said that people who follow the crucified Savior have a theology of the cross. And that basically means When they see something, they call it what it is, okay? And I'm not talking about having like special Gnostic discernment powers that allow you to peer into stuff God hasn't told you or hasn't revealed. I'm talking about God giving us Jesus Christ, His Son, the man on a cross, and the world says, hopeless, worthless, disgusting. We look at this naked dying man on a cross and we say, beautiful, my only hope. The cost of my sin. What we, when, when something is good, as declared by God, we call it good. When something is evil, as declared to be so by God, we call it evil. A theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. Why? Because that's what our God does. And here he begins by calling his people what they are, what they have become. He names them in accordance with their behavior. And not only their behavior, but also according to what they actually love. That's perhaps another sermon. But but what you love constitutes a pretty sizable portion of your identity. So what have they done? They've, They've committed adultery with other gods, as it were, God being their husband in this proverb, in this parable. Other gods, other idols, other nations. This is not... Uh, neglect of God. And I want to say that because, again, the language of forgetfulness and forgetting can sometimes give us the idea of just neglect. But it's more than neglect. It's outright rejection. And so they are placed under divine judgment. Look at verse 38. God says, I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood. So you have two violations from the Ten Commandments there. I will judge you as adulterers, Seventh Commandment, as murderers, Sixth Commandment, and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. In other words, my wrath and my jealousy. Right? And, and, and when you think of jealousy, again, think of a husband who's been cheated on. That's, that's the image here. So that kind of jealousy, we're like, well, that's, that's good jealousy. Like a husband should be angry when that happens. A wife should be angry if that happens to her, right? It's only if, if you're thinking, well, isn't jealousy a bad thing? Well, yeah, if the if if the jealousy, you know, if, if the kid in 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 high school, for instance, is is jealous of some other guy because he's he's dating that girl and it's like, well, she she doesn't she's not yours in the first place, man, so that's kind of petty jealousy, right? We make that kind of distinction. Because we understand the difference between petty jealousy that can accompany that kind of situation versus, like, we've got a covenant bond here that's been broken. You want that kind of jealousy in play, otherwise something's wrong. Ezekiel does not allow us to forget that God is the judge here. And his people have forgotten him. That's why he's talking about judgment. And saying, you you know, it's, it's been repeated throughout the whole book of Ezekiel again and again and again, the most common phrase in the entire book of Ezekiel. All of you by this point should be able to rattle off the most common phrase in the entire book of Ezekiel. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Then they shall remember what they have forgotten. So the charges have been explained in the earlier part of chapter 16. This passage is the punishment. And whenever sinful fallen human beings like you and i read a judgment text like this particularly one as like alarming as this one we tend to make a few errors which is if we're not careful we assume that our sins don't deserve this kind of judgment or we start to think i mean you know like this is a little over the top like the lord god almighty seems to be being a bit of a drama queen Okay, so let me address just real quick each of those misconceptions about sin and judgment. First of all, we are tempted to think when we read a text like this, oh man, those people were really squirrely, really nasty, really terrible, really abominable. I'm glad I'm not like them, right? That's in another part of the Gospels, I think. Thank you, Lord, for not making me like these worthless Israelites. This is usually because you and I are really good at becoming experts in excusing our sin and dreaming up all sorts of reasons why our sin really is not as bad when compared to the sins of other people. And so when you think of Jerusalem sins, that might be easier to do because, just well, let's be honest, just because of the sheer archaic language, like you're, you're reading the Old Testament already, it feels existentially different. But, but if you look at verse 36, let's go back to verse 36, thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out, your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and all your abominable idols because of the blood of your children that you gave them, okay? So let me just address something real quick. This goes back to the other point I made. If you're tempted to think, man, God's being really dramatic here, don't don't forget the nature of their sin. They were sacrificing their children to foreign gods. Now, so many in our society have deadened their conscience at the sheer weight of the horror of shedding innocent blood. But God remains the blood avenger of the innocent, the defender of the fatherless, But it is important that we not assume that our sins are less evil than Israel's. Let me address that briefly. I think actually our our larger catechism is particularly helpful here. Let me tell you why I think that. Because it is true that not all sins are equal in every way. Equally heinous, for instance. Equally as destructive to our neighbor. In, if, if you want to look this up, maybe later today, in our larger catechism, question 150, asks this question. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? Okay? Are all transgressions equally, hein- equally evil, equally destructive, uh, equally even, even judgment-bringing? The answer is, listen, all transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, But some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations, uh, repeatedly committing them, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And then if you're curious, the next question, 151, starts to unpack what those aggravations are. How is it some sins are more heinous, more devastating, more scandalous, more destructive than others? They include things like who your sin offends, whether the sin is repeated or done without repentance and remorse, How much of it was intentional versus accidental, things like that. But if you're honest, I think, and if I'm honest, if we are all honest together, we know that when we hear things like that and talk about things like that, it's like there's this little defense attorney in our hearts who right now is going, all right, well, if there are categories and some are very heinous and, and less so, I bet I'm like, you know, just under that curve, right? Now that's, that's just an impulse that's in your heart and mine. I bet that means a lot of my sins go in the not-so-bad box. That's why the very next question in the catechism is, what does every sin deserve at the hands of God? Here's the answer. Every sin, even the least, being against, so here's what we offend, the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God, and against His righteous law, deserves his wrath and curse both in this life and in the life to come and cannot be expiated, that is, cannot be removed but by the blood of Christ. And so on the one hand, yes, some sins are worse than others. But every sin begins at this baseline. Our words, our thoughts, our deeds every day that condemn us. It's why we have the time of confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. You know why? because I don't have cameras in your house, and I don't want them either. I don't have the second-to-second details of your life, but I do not have to wonder for a moment whether or not you came in this morning needing the forgiveness of Jesus for sins you've committed this week, and maybe even just this morning, which were outright rebellion against His sovereignty, goodness, holiness, deserving His wrath. It's why, I mean, if you look at the text of our, our prayer of confession, which we print here, Um, So that you can take it home if you want. That's why a lot of the content of our liturgy is printed in the bulletin. But I mean, we we prayed, God, in your presence, we confess our sinfulness, our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, wasting your gifts. That was exactly what the Lord uh, told Israel that they did in forgetting your love. That's what they're being charged with here. Have mercy on us, for we are ashamed and sorry. That's what they weren't doing. There's a, there's a palpable absence of shame in the text. That's part of the judgment. For all that we have done, forgive our sins, and, and, and so on. So this is, this is actually very much the language of our prayer of confession aligns pretty well with the things, if I can put it this way, the things you should be afraid of in your own heart. The Lord of heaven and earth is still our judge, and if we forget that and fail to remember that, we will start excusing and justifying our sin and our idolatry. And look, if we do that, here's the point. If we do that, we have to deal with Ezekiel's God someday. So let me quickly address the other misconception, having addressed the verse, you know, my sin is not as bad. The second is, is God being dramatic? Is this overkill? certainly in chapter 16 we have seen that, that this god is radically offended and speaking in very heavy terms of wrath and judgment so is this an overreaction or worse does god like wait with like a hammer for us to commit sin and just you know just waiting to hit us just waiting for the moment where he can hit us i remember one of um, i can't remember precisely where but i have this just image in my mind of of television in my in my youth one of those, one of these Jim Henson Muppet characters who was a judge and he walks into the courtroom and he's got the gavel and he just loves to, he loves the sound of the gavel and he likes yelling out guilty. And he's just guilty, 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 guilty. And he's like thrilled by it. He's really excited by it. So of course the defendant walks in and before he even says anything, the judge's going guilty, guilty, guilty. And he's like, I don't, I, I think I want a different judge. The stenographer has to sort of curb the judge's appetite for condemnation by reminding him, sir, we haven't had the trial yet. And I think when we read a judgment text like this, we're tempted to think of God kind of in that way. He just likes saying guilty, guilty, guilty all the time. To that, I I simply want to say, read the first part of chapter 16. Remember that in this, remember where we started, God is not the gleeful judge just waiting for them to mess up. He is the betrayed husband who gave Jerusalem everything she could dream of, including breath and life, and she hated him for it and rejected him, humiliated him and did everything she could to make a mockery of his gifts. And so remember, don't forget, dear saints, but remember, That God's judgment is always the latter chapter in the story He's telling. Which begins with His love and mercy. He always, always, always begins with His mercy and His grace. Judgment is for those who reject Him. That's why He says in verse 38, He will bring on them the blood of wrath and jealousy. Jealousy presumes a relationship, a bond and a covenant. Now when He says, (coughs) when He talks about blood... Right? Jealousy and blood earlier. Again, remember something. If he, he says, I'm going I'm to bring upon you the judgment of blood. If we go back to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 6, which was much earlier in the chapter. Do you remember this moment? And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. Right? He, gives, he gives her life. What's happening in the text is a return to how he found her. It's a regression. He found her naked and dying. The judgment is not gleeful overkill, you see. He's simply putting her back where she was. The judge of the earth will always do right. And we forget that God is the judge. That's my first point. My second point, we forget also that He is just. So This text tells us we forget that God is the judge. But second, He is the just judge. God is just, that is, he's, he's fair, it doesn't quite get at it, but it's the closest other term I've got. The idea is when, when God acts as judge, His decisions and His actions are always fair. And that's actually what we see here in the text, that God's judgment is not only a fair response to Israel's sin, it's the only fair response to Israel's sin, but He's actually giving them what they ask for. And this is a principle you find throughout the Scriptures. That when God wants to judge. When, he, when, when he's reached the pinnacle of his judgment. What, what the worst kind of judgment God can ever do is. Is by removing his hand of restraint. And saying fine you can have it. We will never know. I, I think we might be told. In, uh, in, in, in the next life. All the things that God kept you back from. I don't know if we're going to get that information someday. But wouldn't it be fascinating to know. And, and th- even, even just apart from Christianity, by the way, you can find the same concept in the unbelieving world. It, you, you don't, I mean, even unbelievers know, un- unbelievers know that if we were given all that we wanted, it would probably destroy us. Some of you might be familiar with uh, Oscar, Oscar Wilde, the author, who, who was not a Christian, right? Oscar Wilde was lost as a goat but he once famously said, I think it would be the God's greatest joke to give us everything we prayed for. Like the, God's, the, the greatest prank that could ever be played on us is that we would be given everything we asked for. And so we forget often that God is just. And there are two ways, by the way, this text reveals that, that God is not only judged, but that he's just. First, God is just when he judges. when He gives us what we want. That is pretty fair. And then second, He is just because He lets us keep what is ours. So God is just because He lets us have what we want. This is one of the main banners that just like waves over the entirety of this text that God is giving Israel what they want. Yahweh has already told them earlier in the chapter that Israel is like this wayward woman who went chasing after any man who would give her attention. And so He says in verse 37, let's go back to verse 37, Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved, your idols, all those you hated, enemies and the nations and the Philistines and Babylonians and so on. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. What what God is doing is turning the tables, as it were. That's the idea here. He's giving them what they wanted. Right? You want to give yourself over to the other nations and the other gods? Fine, they will have you then. He says in verse 39 I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber, break down your lofty places, strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewels, these are the gifts of God, leave you naked and bare, precisely how I found you. You see how this cuts through to the heart. What, I, what I'm saying, do you see how God is not interested in our ability to project maybe a godly or pious life? He's far more interested in what your heart really longs for. What you daydream about. And amazing enough, did you even notice that God can use His enemies to bring about His judgment? He says, your enemies are going to come in and they're going to break down your vaulted chambers and your lofty places. Translation, when your enemies come in, your other lovers you've invited in, they will end up doing what you didn't have the stomach to do. They'll knock down all your avenues for sin. One way or another, God says, my streets are going to be purified. So so judgment can come when we get what we ask for, but also God is just because he lets us keep what is ours. He says that Israel will be left naked and bare. And again, that's how he found her. And nakedness as an image of judgment is pretty common in the scriptures. Um, I mean, if you think back to uh, the garden, first three chapters of Genesis, our first parents were not ashamed of their nakedness because they had nothing to hide. But after the fall, after they sin, what do they do? They try to... to to cover themselves, to duck and cover and hide. And this is why in a lot of Christian art, images of Judgment Day, you have the, the, the righteous in heaven and they're clothed with white robes, right? That are not theirs, but that they were given. But those who have rejected in Christ are in hell and often they're naked. It's a biblical image too. That Christ, the one who went to the cross exposed clothes us with His own righteousness. That's the clothing we need. We don't earn it. He gives it to us. In the book of Revelation, there's this moment where Jesus calls out to a church who has wandered just like Jerusalem. They've forgotten their first love. Listen to what He tells them in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy gold from Me, gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. White garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. This is the same kind of voice in Ezekiel. God is saying, you are returning to the very misery I rescued you out of. Returning to your nakedness. Trying to get back to Egypt. Remember that? Chasing after Egypt with passion and energy that should horrify you. And what will happen to these idols, to these lovers you chase after? Well, God says, to go back to chapter 16, God says they're going to betray you. They're going to betray you. They shall bring up a crowd against you, shall stone you, cut you to pieces with swords. In other words, I mean, if you think of the the code in the law code in Deuteronomy, this was the punishment for adultery and murder. They will betray you, they will destroy you, and indeed, your idols, your, your false gods, men who... You want to treat as gods. They all have one thing in common. They're going to end up being traitors. That's the thing. Your idols will always betray you. They will promise you a lot of things. Idolatry promises you quite a lot of happiness. And then it betrays you. And if you keep holding on, even in the moments when it devastates you, someday it's going to destroy you all the way. Idols are the things that own your heart. That seek to seduce you away from the love of God. And we... The most foolish things we do in the midst of idolatry have got to be when we, when we write stories of God's like injustice and unfairness to us in those moments. When we hurt, and we really do hurt, Christians can hurt mightily, and then we're tempted in those moments to write these stories of, of, of God being unjust and unfaithful. why I try to keep front and center in my mind some helpful words from John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He says, my trials have always been fewer than my sins. Right? My trials have always been fewer than my sins. We get so easily drawn away from our first love, especially in the midst of trials. And the pictures you see in this text in, in chapter 16 are pictures of Israel returning to that God-forsaken mess that she was before Yahweh found her. And we, like Israel, are tempted to make little of God by the way we handle our times and our stories. We are always tempted to long for the past. We are always trying to get back to Egypt. We always write beautiful pictures of the past, boring pictures of the present and terrifying pictures of the future. Don't we? I mean, be- Like stunningly beautiful pictures of the past, really, really boring pictures of the present. It's just kind of boring here. I don't like it. And terrifying pictures of the future. And so we must remember that God is the judge and the one in control and, and that he's just. Those are the first two points this morning. I have one more for you. God is just. God is our judge. And finally, he is not mocked. Listen to what the Lord says to Israel, starting in verse 41. He says, They shall burn your houses, execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. That's the shame. The shame they're failing to feel over their sin. I will make you stop sinning, make you stop playing the whore, and you shall give payment no more. Do you see that? In the sight of many. God is saying, look, if you had any illusions that your sin was private or isolated Or hidden from view, rest assured that your judgment will be public, shameful, visible to all. Now, shame is a hard thing to talk about today because we tend to think of shame as always a bad thing, right? Never, ever, ever make somebody feel ashamed. Never, ever, ever shame somebody. That's bad. Christians shouldn't do that, especially. That's how we tend to think of it. Shame is always to be avoided. That people should not be shamed for their behavior or their ideas or their words. And that, I I add quickly, that idea seems to be dissolving in our present cultural moment. As far as I can tell, the wider non-Christian culture certainly does believe in shaming people. It just has an ever-changing code of ethics and morals that dictates who deserves to be shamed. So here's the question. Do Christians believe that people should be shamed? And the answer is, it depends on whether or not they've done something shameful. That is the answer. And Israel, by the way, most certainly has. The point of the text is that they forgot what shame was. They forgot what constituted this is something for which you ought to be ashamed. And so God says to them in verse 43, Verse 43, Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, you have enraged me with all these things. Behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head. I have given you what you have asked for. Have you not, he defines it for them, right? Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Is it not interesting that in our particular moment where expression of sexual desire is something that can never be touched by shame according to our culture, God says, let me define this for you in terms you should understand. Are not your actions defined in these words, right? Lewdness, abomination, and so forth. Because they forgot what it was to be ashamed and what they ought to be ashamed of. God is giving Israel proper vocabulary. He's saying, if you have any illusions that this is not lewd, not disgusting, not sinful, not shameful, let me resolve that for you. And what does this text have for us today? It does tell us there's no such thing as hidden sin. Or rather, there's no such thing as sin that stays hidden. One of the worst lies we tell ourselves is that our sin won't be found out. That the sin we commit in private will stay private. Great men have fallen. Great kingdoms have collapsed because fools thought they could keep their sins secret. And maybe you will manage to keep something secret until your death and then your children and your family have to bear it. Just ask the family of Ravi Zacharias. The lie is that as long as we keep them secret, perhaps even lying to ourselves about it, saying it's not that bad, but the reality is, what's the third thing I wanted to say to you this morning? We forget that God will not be mocked. He will not allow His name to be trampled by His people. He will not forever allow you to make money look safer than Him. He will not forever allow you to make food or alcohol look more satisfying than Him. He will not forever allow you to make pornography look more enjoyable than Him. He will not forever allow you to make the idols of your heart appear to you or appear to others to make you happier than God Himself. God is not mocked, and we must not forget it. Jesus Himself says something similar, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke. uh, Chapter 8, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed. He puts it on a stand. So that those who enter may see the light for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear for to the one who has more will be given from the one who has not even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Nothing remains hidden forever and that's a mercy of God. We cannot remain idolatrous forever. God will bring an end to our our, our idolatry either by pulling back the veil, either by revelation and behold and other people see it and it's public and now everybody knows. That's a mercy. Or by confession. Confessing your sin to God. Making it known to brothers and sisters and to yourself. Confession or revelation Like confession, revealing your sin because you mean to, or revealing it when you don't mean to. Those are your options. We either bring our sins out of the darkness and into the light by confession, or we keep them hidden until the Lord in His severe mercy exposes all that which we thought was hidden. I recall a Christian singer once saying, the best thing that could ever happen to me is if all my sins were read out loud on the 5 o'clock news tonight. Because if that happened, I could no longer hide from you. I would have to come to you bearing my shame. You would have to tell me I'm forgiven by Jesus. You would have to love me in spite of my abysmal failure, which now we both know about. And I would have to learn to trust that my sins, all of them, really are actually forgiven. But we don't actually believe that, that it would be good for us. So we act like our first parents. When God comes walking through the garden, we hide. And we deflect and we blame because we forget so we must remember. What must we remember? First, that your idols will always demand your blood. Your idols will never die for you. They will always demand that you die for them. Second, we must remember that it is always the way of sin, always the way of your enemy, the devil, to take you where you never imagined going. Right? Sin always has humble beginnings and disastrous finishes. Third, we must remember and never forget our Lord's goodness to us. His goodness to us. That's what Israel forgot, that they'd been rescued. It is His kindness that leads us to repentance, right? If you want to know most fundamentally who God is, look to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ on the cross, crucified for you. Is this the God from whom you hide? Is this the God from whom you hide? This naked and bleeding man who forgives his enemies and turns rebels into sons. Is this the God from whom you hide? The last verse, what we've already looked at before, I want us to look at it one more time. The last verse in our text this morning, verse 43. You've not remembered the days of your youth, and so I've returned your deeds upon your head. Have you committed, have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? This is a call to self-evaluation, isn't it? Look in the mirror. Do you not realize, do you not see? A call to see your sin for what it is, dear saints, and to know that you can pull back the veil on it now by way of confession. Or the veil will be pulled back at a time you do not expect. God is not mocked. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Don't forget it, but remember. Your hope is not that you can conjure up the strength to be a constantly remembering people, but rather that you come confessing your sin and your idolatry and your forgetfulness to the one who says, what does he say to you? In remembrance of me, in remembrance of me, I'm giving you myself again and again and again and again so you can repent again and again and again so that you never, ever forget that I will forgive you again and again and again if you will but return to me. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, We bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. So we plead for your mercy over us. And as we go to your table to meet you here, to be fed and satisfied by you, I pray indeed that that would be our testimony. I pray indeed that that would be our love, the thing in which we rejoice. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see Jesus and taste and see that he is good. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.